0: Amen. Amen. Well, you can go ahead and grab a seat. As you do, uh, I invite you to go ahead and find a Bible. Hopefully you brought one. If you didn't, you can find one underneath one of the seats in front of you. We are continuing in our series that we've been in for a while called Devoted to Prayer. This morning we are going to be in Genesis chapter uh, 37, so you can begin uh, making your way uh, there. Uh, We are calling uh, this morning Seemingly Unanswered Prayers. Um, But here's the thing. We've been in this series now for uh, the whole month of August, and we've been looking at together as a church, uh, what does it mean to be devoted to prayer uh, together? Um, and, and this kind of began in my heart just a couple months ago, really feeling, sensing um, my own need or desire to grow in prayer, my confidence in prayer, my dependence upon prayer, my um, regularity in praying, and, uh, and and know that that's something together as a church that we want to reflect, resemble uh, the, the picture that we see in the early church. They were devoted to prayer. This was central uh, to the ministry and, and who they were and what they uh, what they were about. And so we're seeking to grow in this together as a church, part of that was we're just coming off of um, and following up from this past week was our week of prayer. And uh, what we did, we sort of put the um, invitation out a few weeks ago and said, hey, we're going to, from Monday through Friday this past week, uh, ask everyone to pray for um, one hour to sign up for an hour of prayer from sun up to sundown. We're going to be praying all day, every day, all week long. And um, what an incredible time it was. I heard from many of you, Uh, many of you um, texted, emailed, uh, kind of let me know, hey, I just finished praying, and what an encouragement it was uh, to do that, and uh, thank you so much for your faithful participation in that, and for you um, taking that initiative and doing that, and I hope it was, I hope it was an encouragement to you, and just a reminder, I, I know for me, after I finished, I was like, man, I, I would love to do this more often, I don't, I, I, I mean, I pray regularly, I don't often spend an entire hour praying um, over and for our church and the needs of our church, like, you know, um, and, and that was just so good. I was like, man, I just need to schedule um, an hour a week and, and make sure to take the time to do that. It was just a good uh, reminder uh, for me. So hopefully that was an encouragement for you. If you missed it, if you didn't know about it, didn't sign up or whatever, um, kind of forgot, I would just encourage you, uh, you don't have to wait for the next week of prayer. Uh, you can just pick an hour this week and do it. You can have, um, you just, just, I, would, I would just encourage it's such a good opportunity uh, to do that, but just to take an hour um, together. I can't wait to see what God's going to do as a result of it. But I think one of the things that we do, even after coming off a of week of prayer, one of the questions that we often ask is, what good does prayer actually do? Right? If, if we're honest with each other, with, with ourselves, um, with one another, sometimes I think one of the biggest inhibitors that we have to praying consistently or praying faithfully is that we doubt is God actually going to answer this prayer? Like if I don't pray, what what's going to what's going to happen as a result of of not praying? You know, how how what, what and and what does he do with the unanswered prayer? When there's things that I've been praying for for a long time and I seemingly don't have an answer. And so what does that mean? How do I approach that? Because here's the thing is that if we don't if we don't understand what to do with unanswered prayers, or if we feel like we don't really know how our prayers are making a difference or, or what they're impacting, that's gonna affect our willingness, our desire to pray. And so what we want to do this morning is we just want to look at and ask, ask the question is, what do we do with unanswered prayer? How do, we, uh, how do we respond to that? And what I want to use this morning is this, this passage here from um, Genesis 37 through uh, 46. And, and if you um, know where we're going, this is the story of Joseph. We're going to look at the story of Joseph this morning. And so typically what we like to do here at City on a Hill, at our church here, is that we open God's word. We go through line by line, verse by verse. Word for word, we're not doing that this morning, okay? We're going to kind of fly through the story of Joseph. I want to give you um, sort of the key points, and we want to look at sort of the whole narrative of Joseph and, 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 and look at it from sort of a fly-by approach. It would take us far too long, right, to go through each and every word, each and every uh, line in this. But here's the thing, is that many of us probably know the story of Joseph, Uh, Some of us maybe don't. Uh, Either way, what I want us to do is kind of put ourselves in the shoes of Joseph and look at it from this perspective of prayer. See, prayer is not specifically mentioned. We don't have the recorded prayers of Joseph during this time. But I think what this does, this story gives us a a perspective of the way that God is working in the midst of a pretty crazy, pretty uh, dramatic story uh, in the life of this young man Joseph that we have recorded here. So I'd just love to jump into it and kind of walk our way through it and see the way that God is shaping and working in this story. We're going to pick it up in Genesis chapter 37. It speaks here of, of Jacob um, who lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. Um, and it talks about these are the generations of Jacob. Uh, Joseph, who was 17 years old, um, was pasturing uh, the flock with his brothers. And so we find Joseph, he was uh, one of the younger sons of, um, of, of, of many, uh, 12 uh, brothers, and, and uh, he was here. And, and Joseph, this young brother, had some dreams. Um, in his dream, uh, there were sheaves and there were stars, uh, but the interpretation of it, what these dreams meant, is the 11 stars represented his brothers. The sun, the moon represented his mom and his dad. And he came and he told his family about this dream. But he says, hey, these stars were bowing down to me. And, and, and as you can imagine, if, if this was to happen in your family with your siblings, right? Younger brother comes and says to older, older brothers, hey guys, I just had a dream. You guys are all going to bow down to me someday. Um, it went over about as good as it would in your house. Yeah, right. Like, w- let's see how that plays out. I, I don't think so. Like, you need to uh, maybe, you know, not, not eat so late. Like, just, you know, there's something kind of, you know, working, and, and you had a little, little, you need to go back and check your math on that one, okay? And so he has these dreams, but here's the thing is that his dad, his dad kind of kept this saying in mind, but his dad loved him um, a ton, and uh, he gave him that, that coat of many colors that signified his, his special love for Joseph, um, his, his kind of chosen one. Well, one day Joseph went out to find his brothers. They were pasturing um, far off, and as he was coming from a distance, they saw him, and as brothers often do, they started kind of, you know, oh man, here he comes, here's that dreamer, right, who he thinks he's so great. This dream, he's gonna, we're gonna bow to him someday. Man, we should just take care of this right now. We should just, we should just end this. And they got all riled up to the point that um, they were gonna take his life. And uh, one of the brothers convinced him not to, so they threw him in a pit, and his plan was to go back and rescue him. Well, While he was away, this caravan passed by of Ishmaelites, and they decided to sell their brother into slavery. What a tragic situation, right? For 20 shekels of silver, they sell their brother off and then they bring back the coat, they take his, his uh, coat from him, his garment from him, and they're going to bring it back to dad and say, hey dad, he um, was taken by uh, some animals, must have gotten him, um, he, 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 he died. He died. And uh, so Joseph is sold off into slavery. And what ends up happening, we pick it up in verse uh, chapter 39, it says, Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had brought him from the Ishmaelites who, laid, uh, who had brought him down there. And the Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. And his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him and made him overseer over the house and put him in charge of all that he had. So Joseph raises up to this position of, of oversight and, and power there within the house of Potiphar. It says that he, he, had, uh, he was in charge of everything to the point that the only thing Potiphar had to worry about is like what he was gonna eat that day. It was like that's the only thing that he had to concern himself with is the food that he was going to eat, and so Joseph was in this place of 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 of. Um you know just prominence uh, there in the house and, and God was surely working and so um, it would appear at this point of the story that God had taken this this tragic thing being sold to slavery and now Joseph is in this place at least I mean he is he was still there as so he was still kind of subject to his master but at least he had um, some 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 momentum and some things were kind of going well for him that until um, Potiphar's wife uh, sort of Caught his uh, her eye, uh, he, she approached him and and was pressuring him, wanting him to um, to, to lay with her. And uh, he kept refusing. And he's like, I can't do this to you. I can't do this to God. I can't do this. This would be sin against my master. There's no way. Um, and and then one day she cornered him, uh, caught him by the garment, and was was really going after him. And he ran out of there, leaving his garment behind, and 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 ran away. Well, she took his garment, laid it next to her, and then she told the story that this Hebrew that her husband brought, had tried to make an advance on her and move on her, and, and that he was the one who was going after her. Well, Potiphar, as you can imagine, um, was uh, furious and had him uh, thrown into prison as a result. So now we find Joseph back in a place of difficulty. Uh, he's in prison for something he didn't even do, falsely accused. But yet the same thing uh, occurs Um, It says in verse 22 of chapter 39, the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. And the keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. Whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. You see that God's hand was upon him even in the midst of difficulty, uh, hardship, um, again, being falsely accused, imprisoned in this place, but now he's being entrusted with responsibility there in the prison. Well, verse uh, 1 of chapter 40, it says, Sometime after this, so we don't know exactly how much time passes, but the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense, so Pharaoh's mad at him and has these two imprisoned. Well, both of them, the same night, come before Joseph, and, and he could tell that they were agitated. he said, say, hey, what's going on? And they both had dreams. And Joseph's like, well, tell me your dream. Maybe I can interpret it for you. Maybe God will give you the interpretation. Um, he says, uh, God God knows. Maybe God will tell me and I can tell you. And so they told him the dream. Uh, started with the cupbearer. And uh, basically, I'll tell you the, um, the, the interpretation that was given is that in three days, the cupbearer was going to be, his head was going to be lifted up and he was going to be returned, restored to his position with the pharaoh. Well, upon hearing that, the baker's like, oh, <laughs> I like this guy. He gives good interpretations. I want to hear mine. And so he shares his, his dream with Joseph, except the interpretation wasn't quite as good. He says, hey, in three days, uh, your head is going to be lifted up, except it's going to be lifted up from you. You're going to be hanged. And, uh, and, and, and you know, you're going to be executed, and you will not be restored as the cupbearer uh, will. And sure enough, within three days, uh, that's exactly what happened. But before the cupbearer left, Joseph said to him, he said, remember me, when you go back, remember me when you are in the house of Pharaoh again. Well, verse 1 of chapter 41, it says, after two whole years, two years have passed. So Joseph, after interpreting this dream and helping this cupbearer out, thinking that maybe this was his ticket, this was, you know, this is going to change his circumstances, two whole years pass. Pass. You know, some of us, we forget, you know, it's one thing to kind of read it in a story, but some of us, we've been waiting for God to do some things, to change the circumstance, to change the situation that we're in. That certainly was the place that Joseph was in, waiting for God to restore him to a place. I mean, he was wrongly, he wasn't even deserved to be there in prison. He had done nothing wrong. In fact, he had acted with honor, and here he was, and Joseph is waiting on the Lord to respond well, after two years, Pharaoh had a dream, and nobody could interpret it for him. And it was at that time that the cupbearer remembered his offense. He says, oh, "Pharaoh, I remember my offense today." Verse nine of chapter forty-one. When your Pharaoh was angry and threw his servants, put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard. We dreamed on the same night. He and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. There was a young Hebrew there with us, and a servant of the captain of the guard. And we told him. And he interpreted our dreams, gave us an interpretation according to his dream. And as he interpreted it to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office and the baker was hanged. So Pharaoh brought Joseph to him, cleaned him up, brought him out, told him his dreams. It involved cows and it involved these heads of grain and they both meant the same thing. Joseph says, listen, interpretation comes from God. God will give you the interpretation. Here's what it means. This is the interpretation of Pharaoh's dream. It says there's going to be seven years of plenty. All of our crops, everything is going to do super well. Seven years, there's going to be abundance in the land, but that's going to be followed by seven years of famine. So here's what we need to do, Pharaoh. You need to find Someone who's trustworthy, who's honorable, who can oversee all this. You need to put someone in charge and for the next seven years, we need to take one-fifth of everything that comes in and store it away so that we can weather through the seven years of famine. This is what your dream. You've dreamed it twice. It'll surely come to be. It's gonna happen. This is what God is telling you. And Pharaoh looks around. He's like, who better to ask or who better can, can step into this role than you, Joseph? And so here we have finally... What seems to be the answer to all of the things that God has been telling and working in him. But he takes Joseph from the prison, puts him in second in command over the entire uh, nation of Egypt, over the land. Only one person, that's Pharaoh himself, had more authority, more power than him. Joseph was over it all. And it says when that happened, when he was placed in command, he was 30 years old. See, sometimes maybe you grew up and you heard this story in Sunday school. Maybe you've never heard this story before. It's actually a fantastic, such a good story. I love this story. It's one of my favorite in all of Scripture. Um, I actually led some teams over to the country of Estonia for several years, working with high school students there. And uh, the students we were with, I actually got the chance over the course of a week to share this story and talk and teach from this story. And many of them had never heard it before. And so if you could kind of put those ears on, and maybe some of you don't have to try, you, you, you're there, but others of us, maybe you've heard it for a long time, we forget just how amazing this story is. Here, God gave Joseph this dream, but yet 13 years of being imprisoned, falsely accused, like not seeing any realization of this dream from God that he's going to do, and now finally it came to pass. But can you think about, can you put yourself in his place for those years as he's waiting waiting on the Lord, asking, God, what are you doing? What is this? I don't deserve this. I didn't do anything for this. What is happening? God, would you change this? Would you, would you transform this? Would you use this? All these prayers that you know Joseph was praying through it all. Well, it gets better. What do you think happens? Well, exactly what um, was predicted. Seven years of plenty. Joseph... Leads the nation. They're putting aside all of the grain, everything that's coming out of everywhere. They're running out of places to store it. It said they had more than they could count. It's all over the place, tons of it. And then comes the years of famine. Two years into the fa- years of famine, who would show up? there in Egypt, but Joseph's family, right? His brothers. Now, they don't recognize him. He's at this point is 39 years old. 22 years have passed since they sold him into slavery. Uh, he's as good as dead as far as they know, right? They have no idea. Yet, I'm sure Joseph has thought about his family many, many, many times over those years. When they come walking in, he recognizes them. He knows exactly who it is and what happens, but they come before him and they bow before him as the governor over all things. And they ask, they say, hey, we're here to buy grain. We need food. We're starving the famine has reached every corner of the earth and we need food from you. And so Joseph, he starts to kind of like, like mess with them in kind of a good way. Um, if I could just kind of put it that the classic little brother. Um, so he doesn't reveal who he is right away, but they buy the grain and he puts their silver back into uh, their, their sack, right? So they stop and they open it up. They're like, oh, oh somebody made a mistake. This is, here's my money right here. Um, they they were worried they were going to be in trouble for it. But more than that, he starts accusing them of being spies. He's like, "How do I know that you're not here to spy on our land? You need to prove it to me. Bring your younger brother back, Benjamin. Bring him back to me that I could see and know that your father is alive and know that you aren't spies." And so um, they they are they don't know what to do. They go back. They tell dad, and "Like, no way is Benjamin I'm not. I lost I lost one of my sons, right, Joseph." I'm not going to lose my other one, Benjamin. And, but sure enough, the famine continues. They need the grain again, and so they send him back with that. And he comes before, and he like loses it. He's like, this is my brother. And he sees the way that his family has changed. He sees all of it, and he reveals himself before them. And he says, listen, he's like, God has used this for your good. He has saved you uh, through this. Actually, the, ways that he's, the way that he says it, if you want to look at it there, it's in Genesis 45. Um, verse 7 and 8. He says, And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord over all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. So they brought his dad back. Family moved there to Egypt. They lived in comfort and prosperity. God Bless them in that later after Jacob died, after Joseph's father, Joseph and the brother's father died, the brothers were concerned that Joseph was finally gonna take his real revenge, right? So they come to him, they're like, please have mercy on us. And he makes this statement that uh, we know so well, Uh, Genesis 50, verse 20, "'As for you, you meant evil against me, "'but God meant it for good to bring it about "'that many people should be kept alive "'as they are today.'" You think about all the time that passed from the time that Joseph had this dream to the time that this dream was realized some 22 years before it was answered and he saw his brothers bowing down before him. But God used what was evil and what was meant for evil for the good of not just Joseph, not just his family, not the family of Jacob, but also for all the land. I mean, the nations, the people We're saved through what God had done through Joseph. He was there at that time in such a way that he could be used. And so here's what I'd love for us to do, is to sort of step back from this whole story and put ourselves in the shoes of Joseph and think about what would you have been praying? How would you have been viewing the situation if this was you living through this this 13 years of waiting for the Lord. This 22 years before you saw the way that God was working, I promise you this. We don't have any of Joseph's prayers recorded, but I promise there was years of yearning and waiting and, and debating and, and questioning and, and, and wrestling with God on this, seeking to trust him, seeking to follow, knowing that he's good, knowing that he's working. I mean, he was a righteous man. God surely was blessing. His hand was upon him but I'm sure there were times when he's praying and trying to just wrestle through, God, why are you not answering these prayers? And here's why I called today seemingly unanswered prayers. Because I think if we step back and we have the same perspective, when we look at the whole story, prayers that are unanswered, that we would say God has not yet answered, I think are oftentimes seemingly unanswered. God is often answering our prayers, just maybe in ways that we are not looking for, that we don't see, that we don't expect, or maybe even ways that we would desire it to be different. And here's what I think we can do. If I, if I could, I'd love to just sort of point us, take the whole story, the whole narrative, and kind of point us toward three shifts that I think we need to make in our thinking about prayer from the life of Joseph, from his story. Three shifts that I think we need to make. I'd encourage you to write these down, but here's the first one. I think we see this from from his story, is that we need to make this shift that deserts are to be expected. Deserts are to be expected. Now, I'm using that word desert not because we see a a physical desert in the story of Joseph, although you know he kind of, I don't know what it looked like as he was trekking there, but but his life could be called a desert. So much of his life was a period of a desert. You see, desert is a theme that we see throughout Scripture. So many times we see this, this calling of the Lord a period of desert or wilderness, and then that calling is realized. Calling of the Lord, desert, wilderness, the calling is fulfilled. Think about how many places we see this in in the life of uh, Moses, right? Moses is, is called on by the Lord. He goes to the desert for 40 years. He's there living in that place before he finds that burning bush and then leads God's people out of captivity. David is anointed king said that he's going to be king, prophesied over as king, yet he spends years fleeing from Saul in the desert and his enemies in the desert before he's finally crowned as king of Israel. Jesus, illustrating this very theme for us, we see that he, um, upon, uh, right after his baptism, and we see the, 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 the Holy Spirit come down upon him, um, he goes to the desert. For forty days, forty nights, and he is there in that place um, before um, before uh, beginning his earthly ministry. There, right? We see this this theme of the the desert happening, and deserts are all over in parts of our life. Um, there are deserts that we face in our life, and here's the thing that we need to understand and know about deserts: is deserts can be any dry place of desperation. In your life. So it might be a sickness, it might be a situation or um, you know, problem, issue, thing you're kind of working through at work. Um, it could be just a place of longing and desire, it uh, could be a, a relationship, it could be anything. We encounter deserts in our life all the time. And deserts have a way of heightening our, des- our dependence on God deserts have a way of heightening our dependence on God. When we are in the place of a desert, the things that we need, the essentials become pretty crystal clear for us, right? We need food, we need water, we need shelter. We understand and know the necessities. See, deserts heighten our dependency and our desperation. And we shared last week that one of the ways that we need to pray, one of the ways that God invites us, calls us to pray, is from a place of what? Helplessness, desperation. Deserts help bring us to that place. See, if we're honest, I don't think any one of us loves to be desperate or dependent. We like to have things in order. We like to have a plan. We like to have the ability to affect the situation around us, right? When we're in places of desperation, we're in places of helplessness, it's not a fun place to be. But yet God uses deserts to bring us to those places of desolation. And it changes things about us. Um, I've been reading tons of books and, and um, you know, just on prayer and, and listening to uh, teachings. But one, one of the authors, um, Paul Miller, who I uh, read, um, one of my favorite books on prayer, A Praying Life, he shares in there um, that he used to have his kids comb the fringes of the carpet in his house. Like this was kind of like, this is what he used the, the illustration of sort of like how put together his life was. I don't know about you, but if you have your kids comb the fringes of the carpet in your house, I want to talk to you because I just want to to analyze that and kind of figure out what's going on because that's fascinating to me. But here's the thing that happened to him is the desert came when they had, him and his wife had a child with great disabilities and everything changed. And he's like, after that, he's like, I was lucky if I could find a comb for my hair. Like we didn't care about the fringes of the carpet anymore. All of a sudden this desperation, this helplessness, this longing, it all changed. Why? Because we were in a place of a desert. Joseph went through years and years of being in a desert, being sold into slavery, being wrongly imprisoned for something he didn't do. This was a place of a desert. Some of you are in a desert right now. And I think what oftentimes our prayer is, is that we ask God to take us out of the desert as quickly as possible. And that is the prayer that we pray most frequently and most often. Now, let me be clear. I don't think that that's necessarily a bad prayer to pray, to be taken from the desert. We see Jesus prayed a similar prayer, right? He was heading to the cross. And what did he pray three times in that garden? He says, if it's your will, God, take this cup. Father, take this cup from me. If it's your will, take this cup from me. Father, if it's your will, take this cup from me. He was asking to be taken away from that desert. But here's the thing, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing to pray, but it shouldn't be the only prayer that we pray. If you're in the place of a desert, don't just pray for the desert to end quickly. There's some other prayers that I think God would have us pray in that place of a desert. I think we can pray, God, would you, would you not waste this desert on me? Would you teach me through this time? Would you show me what you're doing through it? God, would you sustain me in this place Would you grow me? Would you change me? Would you use me in this place of a desert? Would you increase my dependency upon you? Or even prayers of thanksgiving. God, thank you for the way you are sustaining me in this desert. God, thank you for being with me and present when everything else seems to be falling around me. You see, I think of Psalm 23. You see the movement of the good shepherd There, as David writes, he says, where does God start? Well, it says that he leads me to still waters. He's in front of us. And then it ends with him following us. It says, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. But where is God in the midst of the desert, in the valley of the shadow of death? He says, he's right there beside me. He is with us in that. And so we can know, we can trust this dependency. See, in the places of desert is where we are the most desperate for God to work and that is the best place for us to be. We have to make this shift in our prayers. We have to know that deserts are be to, to be expected. because how do we pray through a desert? We ask God to use that desperation and to shape us and change us through that. That's the first shift. Here's the second shift that I think we see from the life of Joseph and from his story. It's this: is that God's story is still unfolding. God's story is still unfolding. Joseph, if you were to pause at any point, right, you have the remote, you pause, and you were to do an evaluation on how the story is going, it looks pretty grim most of the time, right? For 22 years, it's like, is this going to happen? Is God going to do this? What's going on? God, where are you? Why are you leaving him there? What's happening, right? These are the questions that I'm sure Joseph was asking at different times, It's only in the full context that we can read and we can say, man, this is such a great story. Why? Because we have the beginning to the end. We see the whole arc. We see how it all came together. We're able to connect the dots. See, we can step back and we can see and say, well, you know, here's the amazing thing is that if his brothers had never sold him to the Ishmaelites, he would have never ended up in Potiphar's house. And if he never ends up in Potiphar's house, then he wouldn't have ended up accused by Potiphar's wife and ending up in jail. And if he wasn't in jail, then he would have never met the baker. He would have never met the cupbearer. And the cupbearer would have never told Pharaoh about who he was. How in the world would he have ever gotten to that place of prominence any other way? See, God used the desert to bring him to the place that he was going to use him in his story, but it's still unfolding See, here's what, here's what I think the shift that we need to make is we need to see and understand that God is still writing and unfolding the story of our lives. Do you know that God has a story that you are a part of? And I use this word story because, see, we, stories are powerful for us, right? We can tell a story and get captivated by it and kind of, because we know that there's, there's progress, there's movement, there's, it's, it's dynamic in that. Now, let me be clear. What I say when, when, when I'm saying the story is still unfolding, God knows your story. He's written it. It's just, from our perspective, it's still unfolding. It's still playing out. We don't know where the story is going right next, right? We don't know what plot twists are still yet to come, yet we are in the middle of this story. So many of these places, for Joseph, the story was in a bad spot. See, if you and I can make this shift and understand that we are part of the story that God is playing out in our life, it changes the way that we pray. Then no longer are we just focused on this one scene and what's happening at this one moment and in this set of circumstances, yet we can ask God, would you help me to understand and see the bigger picture, the bigger story that you are playing out in my life? How do all of these things come together? Because if we make this shift, and if we understand that God's story is still unfolding, we start understanding other parts of the story and how they play together. Do you know that your story has like sort of multiple plots that are interacting together, right? Because he's writing this story for each of us. And our plots kind of overlap and, and, and mesh for a time or sort of intersect with each other. But there's like multiple things going on at any one time. I mean, God is working out thousands and thousands, millions, billions, right? Of stories all at the same time. And he's orchestrating and working in all of that. Have you ever thought to think about how he then kind of takes prayer and overlaps all that together? Because there are what I could call competing prayers happening. You realize this, right? Let's take a really basic example. If you've ever prayed for a sports team, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but, but I know some of you have done this, right? You've prayed for your team to win. Now, here's the thing. There's probably somebody on the other side of that team that's praying for them to win, too right? So there's competing prayers going on. (laughs) You're praying for your team to win. They're praying for their team to win. So who's going to win? Is it the team that has the most amount of people praying and it's like the most amount of prayers happening? That's who God's going to allow to win, right? There's competing prayers. It's not every prayer that we ever pray is going to get answered. There's prayers in that. Or how about this? Maybe a little bit more real life or a little more helpful. Um, A bride praying for no rain on the day of her outdoor wedding, Meanwhile, there's a farmer down the street who is like so over this dry spell. We need rain so bad. And he's like just praying, God, will you please send rain? Like this week, this weekend, would you you please send some rain, right? There's these competing prayers that are happening. We have these overlapping uh, plots in our life. Maybe a little more practical, if you've ever prayed for a job, There's somebody else on the other side, other end, probably applying for that same job that's also praying that they would receive it as well. So sometimes I think that the place or what we have to understand about our story is who is the main character of our story. There is like the main cast and then there's the supporting cast in our story. And our tendency in our own kind of Understanding and and what we could just be honest about pride and selfishness is we place ourselves smack in the middle, the main character of our own story, right? We are the main role. We are the lead. Everything that's happening in our story should be happening and sort of revolving around us. I just want to burst that little bubble for us and just say that is not the reality of our situation. You know that we are not the main character in our own story. There's somebody else who is. Let me um, give you an example of what I mean by that. Um, Some of you are major nerds, and you might know who this person is, but but here's a picture from um, Star Wars. This is from the very first, like the original Star Wars. Does anyone know who this is, like their name? This is Biggs Darklighter, okay? Okay. A pastor used this uh, illustration years ago, and it, it just I, I always stuck with me. I remember, I remember um, this so clearly because it's such a good example of this. I had no idea who Biggs Darklighter was until I heard about this. But Biggs Darklighter, he was flying an X-Wing uh, uh, whatever fighter jet, thank you, a little X-wing fighter, and he was there going after the Death Star with Luke, and what he did is he played the crucial role of taking on Darth Vader's fire, sacrificing himself so that um, Luke Skywalker uh, could make it and blow up the Death Star, right? Without Biggs Darklighter, nothing else happens there, yet none of us know his name. He was the supporting cast, right? We do know this guy, right? Luke Skywalker, of course, all right? This is, we have to, uh, tell me we're, we're on board with this. We know this, right? Okay, I'm a huge Star Wars fan. I don't, I'm like this kind of closet nerd. I, 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 um, I don't often, you know, um, just like let everyone know how big of a nerd I am, but I'm super into um, some of this stuff sometimes. So I am into Star Wars. I do love this guy. And so without Biggs Darklighter, his story doesn't happen, right? The supporting cast. Now, some of us would say, well, what, that, what a waste, right? Like Biggs Darklighter, we don't even know his name. But yet the thing is this, is that he served such a crucial role in that place so that he could support the main story, the main cast member, the main thing of what was happening there, and he served an incredible, um, needed element in that. I'm here to tell you today that the story of Joseph Joseph is not the main character in his story. Neither is Jacob and the people of God. neither is the people of Egypt. The main character in the story of Joseph that we're looking at today, the main character is God himself. God is the one who's actively working in that. You see his hand throughout it. It says that God blessed him, right? God gave favor to his hand. God worked in all of these ways. This is God's story about how he was working and using Joseph in that place. Joseph is the supporting cast to God's story. If you and I can make this shift and understand that God's story is still unfolding and that his story, that it's ultimately his story that we are a part of, that we are supporting cast in that, it is a joy, it is an honor, it is a blessing to be a part of God's story, a supporting cast member to him and his main story. See, God is working out his mission for his glory and for his honor and for his goodwill, and he invites us into that to be a part of it. What? So that we are forgotten and sort of cast aside? No. So that we can, we can be a part of something bigger than ourselves, something that God has invited us into. He's made us in his image. He's given us purpose. He's called us to his mission. He is at work in this. See, so many times the problem that you and I have with our story is we think that we are the leading role. We're wrong. He is the leading role, we are a part of his story and he is unfolding it, he is writing it here. When we understand this, it changes the way that we are able to look back on seasons and times of our life and and recognize the way that he is working. The story is still being written Some of you know I love to tell the story, and so um, bear with me if you've heard it many times before, but the story of our church building actually starts in a really unique way. Like how we got this space, which we've now been in for a little over two years, started in 2017 when I was... Um, or at least in my vantage point, it started much more before this, but when I came into the story is in 2017, um, my wife and I, we weren't even here living in Madison. We were still down in Chicago. I was driving up, meeting with people, sharing about the church, and I had a meeting down the road at either Panera or Mod or something like that, and I drove past this church building. I was on the phone with my wife, Bree, and i said i said hey i got to call you back i just passed a church i think it's like shutting down or it's for sale or something like this is what church planters do okay you pass an old church and you got to stop and look at it so i turned around drove back and 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 kind of wrote down the address and sure enough there was like a development sign up and so i went home that night looked it up and it had been put under contract it was being sold there was all these things plans down the road and i was like oh You know, we missed it. That would have been a great spot. But then as time passed, we moved here. I saw that the church continued to not be sold, that this development sign continued to set set up. So I talked to a couple other guys in the church about it. We started kind of praying about it. We put out some feelers, got some more information. Others started kind of praying about it. It got to the point where I would drive past this church building regularly, and I would park my car right there in the parking lot, and I would pray. I would say, God, would you give us this church building? Would you allow somehow for us to move in here? And it wasn't just me praying. There were others praying as well. I met the pastor who was here. I reached out to the board of uh, over the churches to kind of find out. And again, all this was under play underway. There was a developer that owned it. It was going to be torn down. A hotel was going up here. It looked like it was sort of a done deal, but we kept praying, we kept asking, we kept sort of seeking the Lord on it until one day in the middle of December, I got a call on like a Wednesday and they and they said, "Hey, tomorrow you're going to get another call from the guy who's overseeing the process." You have till Tuesday or Monday. We need to get an offer from you by next Tuesday. And if we do, we'll consider it. We're going to consider some other offers on this building. I mean, all of a sudden, everything was put in motion super quick. All these things that we had been praying. I mean, to the point that, like, when Scott and Becky Holthouse House came and were interviewing for for uh, the position here and, 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 and for Scott to come and join, it was in 2018, we actually went and sat in this parking lot. And I said, hey, I don't know what's going to happen with this building, but I'm, I'm just praying that we get this. And they, like like, who is it? Like, this this building looks, oh man, it was in rough shape. And some of you remember those days. You're like, are you sure? Like, (laughs) do we really want this place? Like, this is, it looks so rough. But here's the thing, is that God's timing in the way that his story unfolded was so perfectly placed. Had it happened, had he answered our prayers a month before, two months before, it couldn't have happened. There's about 100 things that had to come together all at the right time. And looking back now, I can see that there's there's some things that would have prevented us from being able to do it and to move in and to get it then if it would have been a month or two earlier. Similarly, if it would have been a month or two later, there also would have been some things that would have prevented us and we would not have been able. It had to happen exactly when it happened. There was such a unique window of time that allowed us to be able to get this. But then part of that was for weeks. Some of you were here, and you remember, we said, hey, we're going to try and buy this building. We're waiting to hear an answer. We were supposed to get an answer right away. They took some more time. It took about three weeks. It was right over Christmas, and so we kept gathering in this place. We kept um, we asked them, we're like, can we just go in and like pray <laughs> over the place? And, and so we would come in here, and we would pray, and our church body together was seeking the Lord. And I'll be honest, my prayer through those three weeks was not God, thank you for giving us this extra time to just seek your face and to pray about this. It was like, God, why haven't you answered yet? Like, I wanted, to, I wanted to know by the end of the year. Like, I wanted to know before Christmas. Like, here we are waiting on you. God, why have you not answered yet? And it was weeks of waiting. But you know what happened in the waiting? Again, some of you can attest to this. We, together as a church, were seeking the Lord. We were praying like we had never prayed before. We were asking, we were desperate. God, would you do this? There's no, no way that we can make this happen. We need you to do this. And then we got the call that it was all approved, it was all accepted, we were gonna do it. And, and God continued to just unfold this thing. I share all that, and just to say that at the time, that story didn't make sense. But later, I was so, so grateful for the timing, for all those no's that I had gotten, because had I gotten a yes from the first conversations I had months before It wouldn't have gone anywhere. It was exactly in God's timing that it happened. Had we even gotten immediate, yes, we would have missed the sweet opportunity as a church to be able to seek and pray to the Lord together. What God had been doing in my heart and the hearts of several others in the church, he was then able to do for all of us as we sought him together. See, this is the way that that story unfolds. When we view and understand the way that our life is a story, it changes the way that we pray. I share all that to just say, I don't know where you're at in the story, but if you understand that God is still unveiling that plot, there's more scenes coming. There's more things going. Joseph's story was not even over when he was 39 years old. Do you know that he lived to be 110? There were 71 more years on the other side of when those brothers first came through those doors. 71 years that he lived back in relationship with his brothers and with his family, all of that. See, so many times I think we pray, we're like, I want this now, life is passing me by, I'm in this place now, but there's so much more on the other side, and we're not even talking about eternity, right? We're talking about just even even the years that we have here. There's so much more that God has and he wants to do, and sometimes in that desert place, the only thing we want is for that to be over, but yet there's still a story that is unfolding. Here's the third shift that we need to do, is we need to understand that our persistent prayers play a part. Our persistent prayers play a part. Again, we don't have any of the prayers of Joseph, but we know this, that God has called us to persistent prayer. The passages we looked at last week were Luke 11, Luke 18. If you have not seen those, I would encourage you to go back, listen, or look those up. We see this friend that comes, knocks on the door at night, asking for bread. We see this widow that comes before this judge, asking for justice. The point of both of those stories was this, to come regularly, persistently, asking the Lord to work and to move. How do prayers, persistent prayers, play a part in changing the story? I have no idea. I don't know. God, like, knows all of it, right? He's working in all of it. So how do our prayers shift and change things? I, that part, Scripture, does not really unpack for us and teach us that. But I know one of the ways that prayers plays a part in my life is it changes me. It shapes me. It brings me to that greater place of dependency. It brings me to that place of need before the Lord. Our persistent prayers play a major part in what he's doing in my life. JD Greer in one of his new books, he shares five reasons why your prayers might be unanswered. I thought these were really good. I just want to share them with you. I apologize I don't have them on the screen so you can write them down, but the first reason that your prayers may be unanswered is this is that you might not be his child. Sometimes we presume upon the Lord, but here's the thing is that we are not born his child. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for us and to restore us in relationship to him, to adopt us into his family. And so if you're not one of his children, he might not be answering your prayers in the same way because because you are not his child. The second reason might be this, is that God might be changing you. Your prayers might be unanswered because God is changing you. He wants to shape you. He wants to move you. He wants to do some things in you through this season that you are in. One of the number three, one of the reasons that your prayer may be unanswered is because God has a greater plan at play. There's a greater plan that He is working out. Man, I could tell you, I could share literally dozens of stories of things that I've prayed specifically for and God did not answer. And later, with more time, more perspective, more understanding, the passing of time, I was so thankful. And I even prayed, God, thank you for not answering that prayer. I mean, when Brie and I were setting out to plant a church, we thought for sure we were going to end up in Charlotte, North Carolina. That was the place God had placed in our heart. We thought that's where we were going to end up. We were praying for that, going after that, and God shut that door and he opened up this opportunity here in Madison. We pray all the time, thank you, Lord, so much that we are not in Charlotte, North Carolina. I love Charlotte, wish the best of the people there, miss all sorts of people down there in North Carolina, but we are so thankful that we are here in Madison, Wisconsin. God had a greater plan to play and it was not, it was not the play that we thought was going to happen. Number four, God does not often rewrite the rules He works within the rules and and structures and things that he has put in place. He put uh, all sorts of things about our world order to it. And he does, he can, he can break the rules. He he made them, he can break them. He does miracles, but he doesn't often rewrite those rules. And so so many times we're praying for a miracle. Sometimes it's not necessarily the miracle that he's going to work. He's gonna work within some of the rules and things that he has put into place. We see this all the time. Or maybe, number five, maybe God is just saying wait. Wait is not, a non, is not an unanswered prayer. Wait, maybe he's going to answer in a little bit. It's gonna take a little while. See, so many times we're more worried about the duration than the direction, and God's saying, listen, head in the direction, I'll take care of the duration. We want it shorter, right? We want it immediate, we want it now. We want it over yesterday. And sometimes he's just saying, wait, wait a little longer, my timing is perfect. Would that be the way that we would approach this? Psalm 40 verse 1 I think should shape our hearts. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. Would we be like Joseph? Would we wait patiently on God's unfolding story in our life and trust that He is going to do that which only He can do? And our seemingly unanswered prayers will be answered someday. We will see, we will understand, we will know and in the meantime, we can trust and we can hope that God is still at work in all of it. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your goodness and graciousness to us. God, we're reminded of your, your abundant love for us upon the cross, upon your work, in Jesus Christ, through Jesus Christ. God, it was his death, his resurrection that purchased our adoption into your family God, it's our belief in him that leads us to eternal life. God, it's it's your work. God, it's your shaping, your changing of our hearts that sanctifies and saves us. And so, God, we are so thankful for that. I just want to pray for those that are in a desert that you would increase our faith, that you would grow our dependency upon you. God, we are desperate We're helpless. We need you. We ask that you would work in your perfect timing and in your perfect way. We trust you, God. We look for you with hope. In the name of your son, Jesus, amen.